Hey friends, are you hearing from many Christians who are just kind of, quote, done with church? Maybe you're even one of them. Our guest today says that there's hope for community in the American church and for believers who are feeling orphaned. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 348, Sarah Billups and Moving Toward Community. Hey friends, welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. We are getting at what it's like to live life with God in the 21st century. I'm glad you're along for the journey. It's going to be a great conversation. And I know, I know that many of you, it's going to resonate with you. So when it does, you hear something you love, do me a favor, either text a, a link to, to a friend or a family member or somebody you've had this conversation with and say, hey, listen to this and uh, spread, spread it around as much as you can. Put it on social, tag me, whatever works for you. And of course, as always, if you'd like to help out with some of the uh, costs of the show, you can go to halfwaytherepodcast.com, hit that Patreon button and support. A few of you do that, and I really do appreciate it. It helps uh, keep the show running, cover all those costs associated with podcasting. So I appreciate it. Hey, let's dive right into our conversation our guest today, uh, she's a Seattle-based writer and cultural commentator, which, you know, I love talking about culture. So her work has appeared in what I think are some really impressive places like the New York Times and Christianity Today. And uh, she has her own sub stack. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. Uh, she's also, I thought this is really interesting, is completing her Doctor of Ministry in the Sacred Art of Writing, uh, which is which is a fascinating way to put it, probably, uh, at the Peterson Center uh, for the Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary. Our guest is Sarah Billups. Sarah, welcome to Halfway There. Oh, thanks, Eric. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to make the connection because what I didn't mention here is you have a new book, right? Uh, that's been out maybe a few a few months at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about that and then tell us a little more about where God has you at the moment. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Well, I have written my first book, Orphaned Believers, which came out um, a little bit earlier this year from Baker. And it tells the story of coming up in the 80s and 90s and trying to kind of reconcile, I think, the experience that uh, a lot of us had coming up uh, as even yeah. kids in those decades, how how uh, some things that we're seeing in culture today, culture wars, some end time stuff, oh, uh, consumerism kind of traces back the roots of some of those topics to, to coming up in those decades. So it was a labor of love. And I'm so, so glad it's in the world. But yeah, so I'm a, a writer based here in Seattle. I've been here about 20 years, but I grew up in Indiana. So I grew up in a very Midwestern, not Bible mm. Belt. Is it Rust Rust Bible Belt? Rusty Bible Belt? Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> Whatever that region is. That's how I came up in a non-denominational church. And I've uh, attended uh, a church in Seattle here, Grace, for uh, almost 20 years now. And oh, uh, it's been a really lovely place to land, a soft place to land. So that's a little bit about me. I love that. Okay, well, we'll dive into a lot more of of that story. But yeah, I love that story. I was kind of pumping my fist in the air because 80s and 90s kids unite, right? Like that's, uh, <laughs> we, had, we had a lot of good things, right? And a lot of, but you're right, there's a lot of other things that we see today. Uh, I don't want to use the word manifesting, right? But uh, maybe coming to fruition or mm-hmm. uh, bearing fruit, maybe is, is the way to put it, right? That is kind of maybe, maybe not what we were hoping for. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I wanted to look back and see, you know, I, I'm an end times kid. And I think a lot of a lot of my peers grew up um, here with uh, families that really um, were reading books like the late great planet Earth or the left behind mm. series or watching Christian scare movies. And so like a lot of people in my life, I was told that the rapture would come before 
I was able to have a family or start a career or be an adult, essentially. And so there was really a lot of fear that that instilled in me as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, so I was raised in a house with a, a dad who converted from Judaism to Christianity in the 70s, like pretty radically. And yeah. A, a household that loved Jesus and we went to church and like, we really, um, I was raised to know and understand that I was loved by God, but I was also on the other hand, raised with a, a lot of fear about that the world ending. And so even if you're not an end times kid, a lot of people didn't have that direct experience. There are ways that some of how I grew up, I think really can be seen today in uh, conspiracy theories or kind of politicized Christian nationalism or some other political stuff that we're seeing in the news. So even if that wasn't our experience, that's a really common um, cultural yep. identifier today that I think we can under all learn to understand more about. Absolutely. I think the conflation of the kingdom of God and your politics uh, is a real problem, right? Yeah, that's, an, that's, right. that's an issue. For me, it was a huge break when I realized that the kingdom of God and the United States are not the same thing. Yeah. Right. And then when, when you realize those two have competing interests, the whole world changes. It was, it was interesting. So yeah, that's right. Love that. Okay. You said something real interesting. I want to go back and uh, use that because your dad converted from Christianity or to Christianity from Judaism like that. How did that shape you? Cause I bet that was maybe had some interesting kind of uh, aspects to it. Yeah, what was, what was yeah that like? for sure. Well, you know, he um, he met my mom uh, when he was in his late teens. Uh, they got married really quickly. That ended after six months. They were very young <laughs> and um, living in an apartment in downtown Fort Wayne, Indiana. She threw all of his stuff off the balcony into the river. It sounds very cinematic how she talks about it. I mean, it was it a does. very sort of dramatic end. She went back to Chicago where her family was, and my dad was in a really desperate time. He ended up going to a Bible study um, about the book of Daniel at a friend's apartment. And, you know, he was raised as a oh, reformed yeah. Jew. There were not a lot of Jewish families in, in Indiana, um, in my hometown. So it was really a cultural sort of center and identifier as well as a, a practice, at least for high holidays and, and Shabbat. Um, and so he, you know, went to this Bible study feeling pretty desperate and low after a few months, had what he describes as a really radical moment where he just felt the Holy Spirit kind of come on him and leapt over the couch, ran to the parking lot, fell on his face and just received like accepted Jesus, like received the Holy Spirit in this way wow. that my mom ended up seeing him a few months later. She was back in town visiting uh, a friend or a family member, and she didn't recognize him at first because his his countenance had really shifted. His face had even changed. Hmm. She was bearing a, like a lightness and a, a difference. And so that was really lovely. They ended up getting back together, got married again and had me. And so I was raised in this interesting mix of, you know, evangelical Christianity for sure. And yet also a real interest in, in Judaism. I mean, we celebrated Hanukkah and Christmas. So, you know, for us, it, it's always been a part of my identity that I've really loved and valued. But the interesting yeah. thing that also happened is that my dad growing up was kind of, as he says, the black sheep in the family. He was like the funny one, but was never really felt like he had a real place. He had a large family. But when he converted to Christianity in our in our church, we went to a non-denominational church in a suburban setting. My dad was like the most popular guy <laughs> in the room <laughs> because, you know, there's a evangelicals really love, you know, messianic Judaism and and uh, sort of like modified Seder dinners and, and Holy Land tours. And those yeah. are all good things. I like those things too. But my dad then had some kind of new cultural currency. So it became an interesting part of my childhood to 
watch him kind of talk about his experience growing up with kind of new friends. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what I was wondering about is if you celebrate some of those holidays and some of those uh, kind of things, and if that shaped your understanding of God in any way. Yeah, it it sure did. Yeah. I think that um, it always felt really special hearing my dad talked about, he would talk about being a completed Jew that like we would look back and see many parts in the Old Testament that were pointing to Jesus. And it felt really quite special and and set apart that dad was able to kind of explore this new wholehearted identity in Christ. Mm. So there were really um, wonderful parts about it. Um, but I think that more than focusing on that piece, dad was just really focused on end time stuff and on and on culture wars and politics mm-hmm. and sort of ways that we should vote as Christians or stores we shouldn't go to or music we shouldn't listen to. And so there was very much that trace and thread in my childhood too. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, it makes sense if that he came to faith in a study about Daniel, right? Yeah, like that's, that's kind right. of, uh, that's, that's how <laughs> that's, that, a that's what that comes. Daniel six. Yeah. That's right. That that's what they were talking about. Probably. Um, fascinating. See, okay. Yeah. I often say that you can't, um, you know, Romans eight says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Yeah, yeah. Right? You you can't preach the gospel of no condemnation with condemnation and with mm-hmm. fear, right? There is no fear. Um, right. But that's kind of what we get converted to. I think sometimes, certainly in that time period, that yeah, was that really was an era. really it. Okay, so I'm curious how you think that shaped you and your understanding of your relationship with God, and then also um, wh- when and how your um, your your faith maybe became your own. Yeah. And so maybe those two are the same answer or maybe they're not, but you, yeah. you take That's it a great question. I mean, you know, I, uh, I was afraid of the kind of future that my dad talked about a lot, you know? Um, but I also, there's this thing that happens when you think that you know how it's going to go down, where there's a feeling of you mm-hmm. want to you want to save all of your friends because you love your friends and family and you don't want them to like take the mark of the beast or whatever we were being told, you know, in those years as this sort of literal interpretation of of revelation. But then there's this feeling of exceptionalism that comes because when you sort of know how it's going to go, there's a, there's this way that you feel like almost like a sense of kind of power, like control or something. And so I think that Mm. there was a part of it that I clung to for a long time. And so I have this memory of being, a sophomore in high school, I was at this ice cream shop in Fort Wayne with my friend. We were sitting in a back booth and she had a banana, she ordered a banana split. And I was telling her about like the bad, like the way that it was going to go down. Like there would be a rapture and a seven-year tribulation period. And, you know, I was, I was going through the script and that I'd heard and believed until that time. And I just remember her spoon hanging in midair and her mouth dropping open. Like, but it's my thoughts <laughs> about the battle of Gog and Magog. It was just like, like, what is wow. this person talking about? So all that to say, for a long time, I really metabolized and believed um, that faith was was kind of scary and kind of exciting, and we kind of knew it was going to happen. It wasn't until I, I got to college and became really interested in um, art and ideas, literature, started writing poems and creatively mm-hmm. began to read more broadly, listen to different kinds of music. Um, I began to kind of explore a Christian counterculture. You know, at our local Christian bookstore, there was this section in the back for Truth and Nail Bands, which was this label out of Seattle that had a lot of cool music. And there was this festival called Cornerstone in Illinois every summer oh, yeah. I would go to. And so I think that I began to kind of find my own identity as a like late teen into my college years. And then also found friends that were really interested in, 
in beauty and aesthetics and ideas and how God's creation was this really beautiful, wonderful thing to explore, not something mm. we were just kind of not really caring for because it was all just going to gonna end or burn, you know? And so it wasn't until college that I found kind of new community and began to see my faith differently. When I moved to Seattle um, about 20 years ago, it was with a group of friends to start an intentional community. This was the, mm. this was kind of the missional church era when Shane Claiborne was talking a lot about new monasticism and people were returning to city, like Tim Keller was really growing Redeemer. So that was really kind of catching that wave of, of Christian culture. And so we came to Seattle with a bunch of friends, my husband and I, to start a community. And that ended pretty quickly and was a really disorienting time. The city had a certain weight hmm. to it. And I don't think that we were prepared coming from Indiana to, to really thrive here. Um, there's a lot of reasons why, I think. But I went through about 12 years of what I'd call it a spiritual desert where I was working downtown. I just really truncated my Christian identity and life from the rest of my life. I didn't talk about it unless it was Sunday when I went to church. And that was a real low point in a, a really long time. Um, it wasn't until I was in my late 30s that I began to explore um, a spiritual direction and discernment and contemplative practices and really yep. began to understand that the liturgy that I was raised in, liturgy just meaning work of the people, was a very different liturgy than I think the way of Jesus and the way that we're called to be when we're well-formed. So it really has been in the last 10 years or so that I've begun to really find rootedness and groundedness in my identity as a Christian. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, one of the things I like to ask about is that sort of dark night desert season. Yeah. Uh, so we'll talk about that a little more. Um, but I want to go back to what you said about being in college and kind of exploring that Christian subculture or uh, counterculture idea. What was it about that? And you were discovering art and beauty in some ways. Yeah. What was it about that that kind of was attractive to you? And what did you learn about about God and about kind of how you were connecting with him through that? Yeah, I think that um, I always felt, I think um, I always felt a little bit different or like I didn't quite fit into youth group or just kind of a creative kid that just felt a little more introverted or <sighs> like it wasn't necessarily connecting with me with like really kind of traditional praise music. Um, I just kind of thought something was wrong. Like maybe I wasn't doing it right mm. or maybe if I would just be a little bit different or have different kind of tendencies or personality traits that I would really be able to fully engage with, with church culture. Um, I think that finding counterculture, and I think that, you know, and I think that's important to say, I don't mean against culture. I just mean an alternative yeah, yeah. way of being like thinking about, you know, the beats of the fifties or hippies or, um, you know, like punk rock in the eighties. I think that being able to find people that weren't just making kind of cool music and art because of for art's sake, but because they found a lot of creativity and beauty in the Christian story, that those weren't different mm -hmm. things, but that they could come together was very liberating for me because I realized there were other people out there that had big imaginations um, because of what they see, see in the Christian story and the kind of upside down kingdom and life of Jesus. Uh, that changed everything that felt very radical. And like there was a room for me, a person with a sort of emerging imagination to find mm. a place to. Yeah. I find that really interesting. Is it, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it, tell me if this connection is just off base, sure. but I'm curious if there's a connection between, um, cause the, the sort of left behind uh, sort of how Lindsay kind of uh, thing 
actually is a way in a way imagination, right? There's a lot of imagination read into the text there. (laughs) That's right. Uh, But it really ends up ultimately being based in fear. And so you, and you probably don't, didn't feel able to exercise that part of your imagination and in some of those contexts, because it also tends to be, I don't know if your experience was like this, but sort of fundamentalist and like, Hey, you got to behave in these certain ways. So it sounds like you found a community where it was like, no, wait, there's actually way more to this. Were there certain people you were reading uh, or things that you were maybe influences that you had? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting and kind of cool connection. I hadn't thought of Eric. You're right. It takes a lot of imagination. (laughs) It does. To read apocalyptic, to read apocalyptic stuff and to interpret revelation like that, doesn't it? And I think that, you know, this is not an Enneagram podcast, but I'm an Enneagram for. Okay. Me too. So we can. Okay, cool. And so um, I think that as a person that had a lot of imagination, you're right. It seems like that, that needed to go somewhere. And I think that went to a healthier, a healthier place. And so yes, in, in terms of who I was reading, this is the thing that, that I still lament. I think about this a lot. My influences creatively were, were really more sec- like quote unquote secular influences. Like I started reading the beats. I was reading mm. Walt Whitman um, in mm-hmm. high school. I was reading, you know, I was reading Annie Dillard and, um, Madeline Lingle. So some of the ima- sort of imaginative stuff, stuff more that are for, you know, I was, I love her um, Circle of Quiet. So there were some books, but really a lot of the literature I was reading was not necessarily by Christians. Um, of course, yeah. in my life later, that is very much shifted. And I've certainly found in the mystics and looking back, all sorts of awesome, awesome writing that is so encouraging. But it was really for me more music. It was more people that were doing yeah. creative musical stuff, um, various bands and musicians like Over the Rhine or Vigilantes of Love, just folks that were really doing um, beautiful, good work that I was finding a lot of yeah, open. Yeah. Well, those are some, those, I don't even know who those people are. So that's great. I loved Christian music, but I wasn't like quite that far. I was more, a little more mainstream. Yeah, but. totally. I so I used to go. By the way, you mentioned Cornerstone, and I used to go to um, Sunshine, which was up in Minnesota, which is sort of a similar okay, cool kind of festival. Remember when we had festivals? Those I sure fun. do. I, yeah, those. Were I miss fun. those. <laughs> I've been looking for those in Colorado. We don't have. We used to have one, but it doesn't quite. It's just not the same. Mm, uh, yeah. Anyway, these right. days. But anyway, okay. So that's fascinating. I was curious about that. I was also, as you were talking, I was curious if you were a, a four. I am too, and so like that. I could relate to that. And it's interesting that sort of creativity, like I think it is rooted in God's character, right? He's very creative, but it has to come out somehow, right? And you, we get drawn to the people who are doing it just a little bit different, who also feel a little bit like they don't belong. Mm-hmm. That's right? right. Like the, so yeah, that's yeah, right. I love that. Okay. So you go to Seattle. I'm interested in this and want to just ask about some of that. You go to Seattle, you're going to start this, uh, which tell me if I'm wrong, is that whole thing, like you're, you're attracted to this missional community, this whole idea of like, Hey, how do we do these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and have maybe a different way of doing church or right? a different way of kind of living together. And that falls apart and that kind of yeah, that's, shatters some things. It sounds like, yeah, that's when, you know, this is an era when people were having like church and bars, <laughs> there were lots yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> there were lots of matrix, red pill, blue pill analogies and sermons. We were really trying to make it <laughs> connected to the culture. Um, but there was such a um such an energy, I think, for people to begin to try to remodel. I think that you know, the the beginning of the book of Acts is for every generation a wonderfully exciting and optimistic and really 
really cool right. picture of people living in common. And I think that when you're sometimes when you're younger and you have a lot of optimism and can sort of try things out and have a little more time to to make mistakes or just a little bit more freedom to to see what happened. And so we really had a wonderful, strong community in Indiana after after I went to Taylor University in Upland, and then we moved to a little town called Muncie and found an amazing oh, yeah. community of folks um, that had that were all sort of centered around this church where there was a pastor that was a hippie who really just modeled, if you ask God for things, just wait and see what happens. And the interesting thing is that we we came to Seattle because we kind of followed that theology and thought if we if we ask God for a place to live, maybe we'll start a retreat center. Maybe we'll start a house church. If we ask, then God's going to meet us. But that didn't that didn't happen. And so I think that's what really launched my husband Drew and I into a, a season of sort of deep disillusionment and confusion. Um, I think what, we, what was the confusion? I though? think we lost some optimism. How how can we were told by this pastor that God would meet us? Like if we if we jumped, we oh, fall. Yeah. but we fell. You know, and what happened was. Mm-hmm. So John Mark Homer and Mark Sayers, they had this this cultural moment podcast a few years ago, and they talked about cultural assimilation in the city. And this very much happened to us. We thought we were coming to Seattle to do something, but we were really quickly, I think a lot of a lot of our friends really assimilated by the city. And I was too, you know, it just there was a certain weight to this place. Um, what I didn't realize, and this is a whole other thread, but what I now see clearly is that when we landed in 2004. It was really when Mars Hill, the a church here, you know, the church here, but Pastor Ray Driscoll was very much growing. And so in the local alt-weeklies, there were beats about Mars Hill-owned businesses. There was a real palpable sort of pushback against people that identified as Christians by larger Seattle culture, because Mars Hill was saying things like, we want to have a lot of babies and take over Seattle and have, you know, a church and a football stadium. So there was a real kind of cultural thing happening here. So we didn't just move to any city. We moved to a city that was pretty politically and culturally charged when it came to the idea of church and evangelicals. And I didn't know that. So that was, we just kind of jumped in. Um, so there was yeah. a factor too. <laughs> Interesting. Well, how could you have known that, right? Because you you wouldn't have. But fascinating. So I don't think anybody, maybe you did. I didn't know that, not having lived or been in Seattle. But uh, the effect that the implosion of Mars Hill had until the the rise and fall of Mars Hill came out, right? Like, right? That was like, oh, and it didn't just affect the people who were at the church, although it hurt, wounded them very deeply. It was also the whole the whole city, yeah, because they were impacting the whole city. It's true. Wow. Yeah, and you know, I you know, at Grace, where where I've gone for a long time, in 2014, I think we doubled in a weekend. I mean, it was really, oh wow, really intense, and so many people either leaving, finding someplace new, checking. I mean, it was just a very charge time. And honestly, Eric, I meet people for coffee pretty frequently now that it's it's still so fresh. I mean, 2014 sounds like a long time ago, but really there's a lot of folks still processing a lot that can't listen to the podcast or that have, and it's raising questions. I mean, mm. there's just a, a lot still here to today in Seattle with folks that are wow. that are emerging from that season. So you kind of stepped right into that, yeah. into it was already maybe a sea of disillusionment. Yeah, that's right. It was really a lot of disillusionment and a lot of sort of larger Seattle culture, really uh, plucky about folks that identify as Christians. So it was really both both kind of sides. So really quickly, we didn't know we were up against, and I just got I just got quiet. You know, I'm I was right. You know, I was working at a small publisher. Was writing about food for all weeklies. I was just I was my Seattle life was super cool, right? Like farmers market, good coffee, cool jobs, but. 
I all the time was holding this double identity that was very exhausting. And then it got to the point where it almost felt like I was holding a bag full of rocks over my shoulder, like trying to maintain these two sides of myself was ridiculous at a point. And that's really where everything kind of came to a head. I realized if I believed this stuff, if I actually believed in the Christian story that there was a real, real Jesus, real resurrection, real salvation. Like if I believed it, I needed to make a change because there was, there was no reason to continue to maintain. Like if I had a light, it was so, it was so far under the bushel. It was almost sniffed out, you know, for, so that was that kind of dark season that sort of wandering. Okay. Well, so yeah, elaborate on that a little bit. So you said that was like 12 years or something. It was a long time. time. That's a really long time. How did you feel during that season? Because it can be tough, especially growing up in that sort of evangelical culture in the Midwest, you know, and you you use the bushel metaphor. I love that. Um, But like, if you're not wearing your faith on your sleeve, you're not doing it right. Right. Like this. So did you feel, was it uncomfortable? Did it become comfortable? Did it just, just feel like God wasn't even there? What was that like? No, it never felt, it always felt, um, it felt like a lot of work. I, it's a, mm. it was like a filter. I was constantly filtering. Mm. Like, am I, am I showing, am I, am I showing up as my full self? No, like that was always sort of managing my identity. It was just a, it was almost like a part-time job, you know, the, the truth is <laughs> when I finally, so in 20, in 2018, I finally started to share, write about faith, writing about faith and culture. And I had a mm-hmm. lot of fear with people that I would former colleagues or people in my life that didn't know I was a Christian, what would they do if they found out? I just, I a little Jesus freak for you. Yeah. Sorry. A little Jesus freak. Yeah. You know, right. Jesus yeah. Freak what would they think? And so <laughs> it's really silly now looking back, I have a lot of tenderness for myself in that time, but people mm. were, were so lovely and gracious. It's not like, um, it's not like Alex from the publisher went to happy hour and said, I can't believe my colleague Sarah was a, is a Christian. And then he woke up the next day and told his friend, like, it's not, who, no one, cares. nobody cares. No one cares. Was, That's right. It was so much striving and maintenance and work for no reason except fear. And so it was a different kind of fear than the fear I grew up with, with end time stuff, but it was that same, that yeah. same maintenance of identity. Um, and so I think that that's how that time felt. The other thing that was interesting was just life. I mean, my husband went to Fuller. He got his MAT. He kind of had a main idea more quickly after the community ended, but I just felt like I was flailing for a while. Didn't have sort of a main focus, was writing, but very scared to share writing. Um, Ended up going back to grad school and had some kids. It was a, a decade of working in school and families. There was plenty going on, but in terms of my heart or my spirit or my internal life, um, it was a really desolate time, um, a time where yeah. I was just trying to hold on and and felt very tossed around a little bit in the waves. Yeah. Which is what the spiritual desert feels like, right? That's, that's how it goes. What did you learn about yourself? And you said this came to a head, so you can tell me that story too, but what'd you learn about yourself? And maybe what'd you learn about God in that season? Mm. You know, there was this, uh, before that season, I remember there was an NPR story with there was a writer who identified as a Christian. And I remember, I just, I've looked for it so many times, Eric, I can't remember who it was. And it makes me crazy. I spent hours looking for this piece, <laughs> really. But um, there was this guy and I turned it up and I said, Drew, to my husband, come listen to this. He talked about how for 10 years, he didn't hear from God. And I just remember hearing that in my twenties and thinking, that is wild. Like, how could somebody hang on that long? You know, and then 
And then 12, so then 12 years later, I see, like, I see God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love. I mean, as a evangelical kid growing up, I was, there was just a, a real focus on asking Jesus into your heart. And for me and a lot of kids, instead of there being this, like, I believe in conversion, I believe in my dad's conversion. I theologically am convicted of the fact that there is a moment or a season of moments where we come to come yep. become Christians, but there was a frenetic energy in it. Jesus come into my heart every night for days and weeks and months. Like a lot of us just kept asking to be sure. Um, and the way that I think what I learned in that 12 years is that there are seasons when the people we love us can carry us. And I don't mean that again, like theologically in terms of salvation, but in terms of holding us up and like modeling Jesus and like believing on behalf of us, if we're in a, a season that's difficult, like mm. my husband held me up for a long time. And I think that in health, the church can do that too. So I think that there's a way that we can bear witness of God's goodness for each other. So looking back on that time, I can see markers and like Ebenezer's all throughout of God's faithfulness, almost exclusively in other people when I myself was was in a point of of weakness or of, of uncertainty. So that that was a beautiful gift. And that's something that I've done for my husband. We we do for each other in relationship um, in various seasons of desolation or consolation, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what a good relationship is, right? Right. What okay. Gift? Friends, I want you to notice that. I, I don't know if you are in a season where you need someone to hold you up or if you know somebody at your church, in your family, in your work, wherever, that needs someone to stand in the gap for them. That's there's some evangelical language for you. But someone someone to hold you up as as Sarah says, be that person. And maybe if you need that person, seek out that person. Because there's one thing about the spiritual desert that is universal, it's that it's lonely, right? It feels lonely. It feels very difficult. Um so a great grace that you can give to your friends uh is to walk with them as much as you can. But then also if it's you, then seek out those friendships as well. Don't be afraid to do that. Amen. Yeah. I think that when we isolate, I'll just double click on that. I think that when we isolate, it becomes a you're already lonely. And then if you withdraw more, um, it just becomes almost unbearable. So if there's a safe person, even if it's just one person, yeah, they make it really makes right. a difference. Yep. Absolutely. So that makes a huge difference. What a, what a really beautiful description of that. And I appreciate you, you kind of, uh, sharing it. It's, that's great. Okay. So you said that came to a head and like, eventually it changed. So tell me how that, how that go. Well, honestly, I mean, what, what happened, I think coming to a head for me was really living in the world. So in, you know, in 2016, when Trump was elected, like re regardless of, of what listeners believe politically or how you voted, just the, fractures and the 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 way that the church is 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 broken and that relationships broke broke apart in that time was mm -hmm. um, impossible to ignore i don't know anybody there's no one in my life that has not had a friendship end or change a relationship with a family member as a result of the political season of the past you know many years um or that hasn't had a you know like a youth pastor or pastor i mean the, the way that the way that there was relational loss and brokenness um and then the way that the church manifested culturally in America in that time was a really interesting and difficult thing. I realized I woke up and I thought, I think I have something to say, because for me, this is around the same time when a lot of celebrity pastor stuff was coming out and a lot of abuse cases. And mm -hmm. I just thought, you know, 
I don't want to burn it down. Like it doesn't do anybody any good to burn things down. But I do, I do think that we should talk about this stuff. No, and some people will say, why talk about difficult or hard things? Doesn't that just discourage people and shed light on what's broken? But I'm convicted um, more than ever that when we bring bring what's wrong to the light, we do that because we love we love the church and we want to preserve the church. And so I just began to realize, I think I have something to say, not because I want to burn anything down, but because I, I love Jesus and I want to help bring us back around in my own little tiny slice of the the world you know yes in a way that bears witness to god's steadfast love and goodness even in the presence of division and brokenness and so what ended up i think breaking open was really just i i felt like i could could say i was sort of un unlocked or unstuck and was able to kind of use my voice for the first time in the way that i'd always longed to you know yeah yeah, which is one of the things. So I kind of alluded to this earlier. What's one of the things that the Dark Knight does for us? I think ultimately, right? It helps us. It God takes away identities and He gives us new identities. In that, uh, right. John the Cross talks about that. So that is. So it sounds like you came out of it going, I can actually speak and be authentic. And there's probably a an opportunity here where a reasonable voice needs to be needs to be heard. And you had something to say given the cultural backdrop. And you had some experiences that gave you a little bit of perspective on it. Yeah, that's right. At least I hope so. That's the idea behind the book anyways. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. There's always, you know, there's, it's okay. Um, so I love that. Uh, very interesting. I, so I think that's, that's really fascinating. So it sounds like you found your voice a little bit and you've been using that. Tell me about that and tell me how, um, I'd love to hear more because I want to talk about the book a little bit, some of your motivation with it and what mm -hmm. you ho are hoping people will get. Mm -hmm. And then also, I don't, is that part of your, is that part of your, um, your okay, studies right. or is it? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Yep. So, you know, so with orphan believers, I just, I, like when I say that, I really just mean folks that Christians that are looking around the church in America right now, having trouble finding Jesus, you know, there's a lot of yeah. focus on a lot of brokenness um, for a lot of reasons, but I think about kind of a spiritual orphaning, people that believe in Jesus, but feel like they've been hurt by the church or hung out to dry by the way that it's been manifested, um, that they can't square, we can't square our reading with the gospel, with what we're seeing around us manifested, you know, in community. And then yep. also there's a kind of cultural orphaning that I experienced and I think folks experience where maybe being a Christian in the city is exhausting to explain what you mean that you're a Christian, but you're not that kind, whatever baggage <laughs> that people yes. associate with Christians these days, or you're kind of where I grew up more in the Rust Belt, Bible Belt area, where there's cultural Christianity abounding, but it's hard to, if there's like an alienation that comes, there's not a lot of mystery or, or lament or contemplation, but just a lot of kind of stadium tours yeah. and conferences and, and kind of bigger markety stuff. And so that's really what I was trying to to kind of articulate with with writing the book, um, there's a lot of us that have experienced this cultural or spiritual orphaning, but we still believe in Jesus and are convicted and convinced by that story. And so what do we need to set aside and what do we need to move forward with? And so I think that it really brought me back to thoughts about the church and about how we were formed. And so for me, it really made me think about the formation that we received as kids again growing up in the 80s and 90s and and what that looks like to today and and how to how to kind of chart a new way forward. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, 
um, I didn't tell you this at, at the beginning, but sometimes I do that. One of the reasons I started this podcast this was I started in 2016. I launched in on June 6, 2016. Um, what a year. Is, <laughs> I know. Right. What, yeah. Crazy. But it was to uh, point the way through the dark night of the soul. Right. Because this was when deconstruction was kind of just starting to pick up and gain a little more steam as a movement, if you will. You started to hear more about it. And I really wanted to see people, I want to hear stories about people who actually got through it, right? Who, who, like you're saying, you can go through the dark night. So the reality is, even though the evangelical story that we probably grew up with was my life was terrible. Then I met Jesus. Now my life is great. Right. Yeah. That was the story. That's fine. Except for all the other things that happen in life. God's people actually have been telling a much deeper, richer, and longer story, right? Yep. And so I wanted to be able to share some of those stories. So this is why when I saw your book, I was like, that is exactly the kind of uh, conversation I'd like to have. And because I think it's the same goal to say to people, look, you can still believe in Jesus. You don't have to check everything. I know that some of the cultural stuff that gets just sort of foisted on you, right? Like even if you're, say you're a Christian, sometimes people will assume you have certain political beliefs, right? Like, uh, these days that happens so much or that you agree with a certain message that somebody thinks is quote biblical. And then I look at it and go, mm, I don't know if I would be like that with it, you know, but we all kind of just assume it because it's, it's cultural and that feels and, and ends up feeling very sort of alienating. Right. That's right. Yeah. I think that when, as you're talking, I'm realizing the, we talked about how dark nights of the soul are isolating and how you started this work in 2016, wanting to, bring other stories to the forefront of folks that have kind of emerged after a season of struggle or trial and how it's politically complicated. I mean, I would say I have had a very similar experience. I think that there's a real sense of, of isolation. The, the truth is that, you know, God is Trinitarian, that we serve a God mm -hmm. that is in community, that the church will always remain because it's what Christ left us with. But how that looks, I mean, again, the only way the church would disappear is if it's a myth, but if it's real, and I'm more convicted than ever that the church is a real, beautiful, tangible gift from God, it means that it's going to go through various ups and downs and looking historically at all of the seasons of reformation, at all of the reformers, at all of the times of change, mm -hmm. where we've come from, but this is our time. And so I've just become convicted that those of us with hearts burning for change, those of us that want to do this work um, are finding each other more and more. And the further I go into it, the more I see that the the room, if you look around, I think is actually pretty crowded with a lot yep. of people wanting to pursue Jesus in the very presence of a lot of cultural complications. And so I, I'm, I don't know if it's ironically, but interestingly more convicted and excited than ever about where we're going Um I don't mean that it's going to be easy. I think the denominations yeah. will continue to, to split up. I think there's a lot of pain, a lot of familial brokenness. There's a lot of real issue, but I also just see this sort of precious gem of, of the church of the gathered body that is just um, really beautiful and compelling, I think for a lot of us still. So I'm, I'm convinced that there is a growing community. Yeah. Amen. I agree. Um, and I, I'm not going to go on my rant about uh, forms and things like that. Cause I do think we're at a season where even the printing press did something right. It kind of broke uh, a certain hold that 
religious leaders had over scripture, right? I think the internet is breaking a hold that religious leaders had over mm-hmm, community, mm-hmm. right? So now we can actually be, we can talk like this, you know, however many miles that is a thousand miles or whatever, um, and share it around the world. Right. And this is a very different kind of a thing We're we're in a season of change for sure. And our forms are going to have to change. One of my best, um, my favorite, I, favorite articles I've read, you know, Skagitani, I'm sure. Um, he wrote a book or he wrote an article in 2019, really, really uh, almost prophetic, but I don't know if he intended to be about um, the geek who's called the case against sermon centric Sundays. Mm-hmm. And his whole point was, Hey, as evangelicals, we've got to, as everything else shifts to experiences, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like people are buying experiences. They're not like they can get, we can get teaching anywhere. I can listen to a podcast and listen to the best preachers in the world. That's not real or any or best teachers in the world, right? Above of Bible. Not really the thing people are coming to church for. They're coming for community. They're coming for the table. They're coming for things like that, that they can't get anywhere else, but here physically. Right. Um, which I think is really interesting anyway. Okay. So that's, so I think we're in that season of change. And I think in a hundred years, it'll look very different. By the way, this is why I um, think of this show. And I think of, I work with a lot of podcasters and when I talk to them, I encourage them to think of their shows, not just as, okay, this episode is going to go out and maybe gets a few hundred downloads or whatever at the moment, but that think about a hundred, 200, 500 years from now, because you don't know the impact that of the waves that you're going to, that you may create. Yeah. I love that long view. That's so good. That's a good word. Yeah. I think it's a good, it's a Christian view. So uh, kingdom view. Uh, anyway, I, I, so I love this. I wanted to ask you, I, ha- I probably have a whole bunch of other things, but what do you, what do you think someone who, if they're feeling orphaned, they're feeling in this place. I know there's, like you said, there's a lot of us. One of my concerns is that there's only so many places people can go, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's like, uh, there's certain paths. Some people end up just, they just chuck it all and they become atheists or like Buddhist, you know, sort of in some ways. And they're sort of like, eh, maybe um, some people end up, they, they end up Eastern Orthodox, or Catholic or something, you know what I mean? They go that way. Uh, other people just kind of linger and are like, I don't know. So where, like you managed to stay in the same church for, for a long time, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. What, from your experience, how has that gone for you? And then also what would you encourage people as they're kind of exploring some of these things? What kind of practices would you give them to do? Yeah. Oh, so that's, that's a great question. Well, for the, for the first part, you know, we've been at Grace for a long time. Um, and interestingly, Grace was, pre- we were Presbyterians and we all voted, the whole church voted to become part of the Anglican Church of North America, the ACNA. So we are now, oh. <laughs> so interestingly, instead of, instead of leaving to join another denomination, the whole church has, has shifted and that's a whole long story, but Grace has always been, um, a, a place, okay. a place where, um, people that, need a sort of soft, again, a soft place to land. It's very, it's always been quite liturgical. So the link is really pretty, it was pretty, we haven't really shifted very much with the move to Anglicanism um, in terms of the service and the cadence, although the table really is a a center point, which is so, so beautiful. Um, But that is one way people go, right? (laughs) That is is one way. So they'll end up, you know, maybe going more liturgical, particularly if you came from like a really low church, you know, Midwestern kind of thing. And then that maybe even going like further. I mean, I know people have become Catholics. Oh, totally. Yeah. And so, but you know, uh, you know, grace has been the thing that I'd always loved to say about grace is it's a place where people can come together across the aisle where there's folks that have different social and political views that really can meet together on Sundays at the table. And I think that like many churches during the pandemic 
we really experienced what I just kind of call a like a pressing or a kind of clarifying where people left because we were talking about social justice too much. People left because we weren't talking about social justice enough. People left because the pandemic was hard. Like we just lost a lot of people, some new people, some people that had been there for a while. It was a very painful time. Um, but so I began to think, oh, that this story that we all came together across the across the political divide is maybe not true. But interestingly, and in a really cool way, what's been happening for the past years, I think we've really gained some new folks that are interested in the church. And there's just been a real kind of, I don't know, like a, a breath of life or some new energy where I feel like there's just a lot of hope and growth and optimism. And I think some of that, Eric, is just that the pandemic is is really ramping down. And so people are just coming mm. around more. But I think, no. again, part of my optimism about the church in general is certainly mirrored in how I'm seeing our congregation here in Seattle. And the thing about going to church in Seattle is that you're typically not there accidentally. I mean, if you show up, unless you're like a teen that's being dragged by their parents, you want to be there. <laughs> and yeah. so the there's almost a refreshing part of that. So while this is a fairly unchurched part of the country, Seattle proper specifically, um, it is really great to know that when you're showing up, you're showing up with other people with intention and not because of any cultural expectation sure. or social capital that's gained, because trust me, that's not that's not what happens here. Um, and so Grace has really been um, a pretty wonderful home in that way. But riding through being faithful to a congregation through many waves throughout the throughout decades is a really interesting place to sit. And I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that there's healthy leadership that I can. What advice would you give to people about navigating this if they feel alienated or orphaned from their church, their tradition, family even? I think I'd say a couple things. First, um, uh, when I talk about church, I'm I'm talking about healthy congregations that feel safe for folks with good leadership. Um, and it's a gift to be able to have found one here for my own family. But I also mean um, maybe that looks like gathering with a few people for, for a while. Maybe that looks like an online space. Um, I think that if you're taking a break from church, that can be a healthy thing if your intention and your um, motivation is towards moving back to community. Because like we talked about earlier, I think isolating is when things become, when a lot of desolation can set in. Um, and, and that can be a really difficult place to come back from. So even if it's one safe person, I think that the first thing I would say is move towards community in a way that makes sense. Um, because I think that that's the way that we show up for each other. And I'd also say that you know, worship together, like collective worship and the table and the sacraments are beautiful gifts that if we feel safe to experience where we are, I think would be wonderful to continue to move towards. And then I'd also say that looking back on that 12-year spiritual desert or dark night of the soul, you know, if we have the gift of long life, I just want to say that there are people, mm. there are people like whoever that author was I heard on NPR and like many of us that I'm sure you feature here, who have, who have come to the other side of that season and we have come through it with a sense of empathy, with greater um, awareness of God's love, God's goodness, yes. um, God's steadfast presence. And so the way that we're formed, um, the way that our spirits change and our orientation towards God change and can, can grow through very dark and desolate times is a real 
um, surprising and hidden gift. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that in any way, like a prosperity gospel thing, like, oh, if it's really hard now, you're going to come through and be stronger. I mean, I'm not, I'm not using that language. There's just a, a certain sense in the spirit that you have withstood something that you have moved forward and stayed faithful through uncertainty and through doubt. And you've moved through into a different season that I think is just um, not only encouraging to our own souls, but that bears witness to other people that come along behind you. So I I think that there's a real beauty, but I think that sometimes it takes a little while and I don't like saying that I didn't like experiencing it. And it's not always true, but if we're blessed with the gift of long life, it just means to, to be steadfast and to, to move, move forward one day at a time, knowing that there are other people to look at that are um, in different seasons that that can hopefully show and give some courage and strength for the journey. Absolutely. Friends, it's okay to be where you are in that journey, even if that's a desert place, right? I love what you said about it being uh, like things grow in the desert, right? Things do grow in the desert, right? There may not be a lot of water there, but things do grow. And uh, they just look different than what grows, you know, in the jungle, for instance, but that's okay. And as one of my friends once said, the desert can be a beautiful place Mm, if you're, if you're looking for that. So uh, absolutely. I thank you. I think that's really interesting. The book again, we've talked about it, but the title is orphaned believers, how a generation of Christian exiles can find the way home. It's available wherever you get books. Uh, Definitely. We'll put links in the show notes at halfway there podcast.com. Uh, definitely an encouraging conversation. Sarah, I appreciate you being here. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Thanks, Eric. No, I, um, I, you know, as we're talking, I'm just, Psalm 18, 19 actually came to mind. Um, I might botch it, but I, he, he brought me into a spacious place. He rescues me because he delighted in me. And so um, I, I just want to encourage folks to, to move towards that sort of spaciousness and uh, he rescues us because he delights in us. And he loves us. And so that's that's enough for, for me, at least for today. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> for every that's, day. that's a great sentiment. I appreciate it. Thanks for being here. It was so good to be here. Thank you, Eric. <laughs>